Colossians chapter 2. And then if you'd like to follow along, page 81 in the back of the blue hymnal as we go through article 26 of the Belgic Confession. For the third week in a row, we're looking at Colossians chapter 2. And it's interesting how this passage deals so clearly with what we dealt with last week, the abolishing of the ceremonial law. And then this week, the supremacy, the superiority of Christ as an intercessor, uh, the only mediator between God and man, which uh, both of those issues in the, in the instance of Colossians flows from the same sort of theological error. So we'll deal with that from this passage, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6 through the end of the chapter. And tonight we'll be focusing mostly on verses 9 and 10 and verses 18 and 19. But we'll read the whole passage. This is God's word. It's given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ." Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, Why, as though you still belonged to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use, because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. 
but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Article 26, page 81. This is quite a long article, so I won't have us read it together. You can follow along if you'd like. Christ's Intercession. We believe that we have no access unto God, but alone through the only mediator and advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, who therefore became man, having united in one person the divine and human natures, that we men might have access to the divine majesty, which access would otherwise be barred against us. But this mediator, whom the Father has appointed between him and us, ought in no wise to affright us by his majesty, or cause us to seek another according to our fancy. For there is no creature, either in heaven or on earth, who loves us more than Jesus Christ, who, though existing in the form of God, yet emptied himself, being made in the likeness of men and of a servant for us, and in all things was made like unto his brethren. If then we should seek for another mediator, who would be favorably inclined towards us, Whom could we find who loved us more than he who laid down his life for us, even while we were his enemies? And if we seek for one who has power and majesty, who is there that has so much of both as he who sits at the right hand of God, and to whom hath been given all authority in heaven and on earth? And who will sooner be heard than the own well-beloved Son of God? Therefore, it was only through distrust that this practice of dishonoring, instead of honoring, the saints was introduced, doing that which they never have done nor required, but have, on the contrary, steadfastly rejected according to their bounden duty, as appears by their writings. Neither must we plead here our unworthiness, for the meaning is not that we should offer our prayers to God on the ground of our own worthiness, but only on the ground of the excellency and worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is become ours by faith. Therefore, the apostle, to remove this foolish fear, or rather distrust, from us, rightly says that Jesus Christ in all things was made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted He is able to succor them that are tempted. And further, to encourage us to go to him, he says, having then a great high priest who hath passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in time of need. The same apostle says, having boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith. And likewise, Christ hath his priesthood unchangeable, wherefore also he is able to save to the uttermost them that draw near unto God through him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What more can be required? Since Christ himself says, I am the way and the truth and the life, 
No one cometh unto the Father but by me. To what purpose should we then seek another advocate, since it has pleased God to give us his own Son as an advocate? Let us not forsake him to take another, or rather to seek after another, without ever being able to find him. For God well knew, when he gave him to us, that we were sinners. Therefore, according to the command of Christ, we call upon the Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, our only mediator, as we are taught in the Lord's Prayer, being assured that whatever we ask of the Father in his name will be granted to us. Wonderful truths, once again. Certainly a long article, but wonderful, uh, wonderfully put at various points. I came across a, a conversation in the last couple of weeks. It was a conversation on the internet, and some people were saying the question had been posed if uh, you could only choose one of the saints of the church to intercede for you, that was the word they used, to intercede for you for the rest of your life, uh, which saint would you choose? You can only have one who intercedes for you. Obviously, in another wing of Christendom, the Roman Catholic Church, there is this whole complex, this system of saints and various prayers that are said uh, in regards to a saint, uh, directed towards a saint, uh, Saint so-and-so, pray for us. And so they're having this conversation. You can only choose one for the rest of your life. A bit of a silly conversation. And uh, what's the, it's the Dutch word you all taught me when I came here for that? Sputten? Would that be considered something sputten? Making light of, of religious things? A uh, bit of a silly conversation. But, of course, it, it reveals perhaps the deeper silliness in that The transcendent truth that that we're centering around tonight is that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who is eternal, the one who is uncreated, eternally begotten, eternally beloved by the Father, uh, came to earth knowing that we were sinners, accomplished our salvation for us, has completed that salvation, has presented it before the Father, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Puritan Richard Sibbs in the book The Bruised Reed, which is, you know, if I could have all of you read one or two Puritan books, that would be in there. And he makes a point of, of saying, Christ intercedes for sin. Uh, therefore, do not let your sin deter you from going to the throne of grace. That is why he is interceding. That is why he is there. I mean, think of the beautiful words, the way our, our catechism weaves it together at, at the beginning of the grace section, talking about the work of Christ, that he needs to be a perfectly sinless and righteous man, but he also needs to be true God. Why? So that in the power of his divinity, he might bear in his person the weight of sin, and that he might make a perfect and an everlasting salvation. And you can, we certainly need to extrapolate the doctrine of Christ into his, his intercession. The session that he has at the right hand of the Father as he appears there for us. Since he is both God and man, we can impute to all that we know about Christ the attributes of God. He does not grow tired or weary. He does not grow faint or stumble or fall. He does not become tired. Uh, He never is worn out. 
So as the God-man, as our intercessor, he always lives to make intercession for us. He never needs someone to stand in his place. He never needs someone to take a shift for him. He never needs someone to relieve him of his duties because he is the perfect and the only mediator and intercessor. So that's our our central idea tonight. The, The greatest intercessor and substitute does not grow tired or weary, but ever lives to be our payment for sin and the righteous Savior that we need. Thus, our hope and our faith must be unwavering and it must be founded solely upon him. And so the, we'll look at verses 9 and 10 from this passage tonight and then verses 18 and 19. We'll focus in on those two sets of verses and we'll see how all of these truths come out from God's word tonight. First idea, the supreme one is our one savior. The supreme one is our one savior. Paul has been speaking in this passage about uh, the danger of leaving the gospel. The danger of, of walking away from the simple faith in Christ as the perfect savior. The one who has accomplished it all. And his warning to the Colossians is, just as you received Christ, so continue to live in him. The word there is walk. He's giving the the picture of the Christian life as a long journey. Continue to walk in Christ. Walk in him. Beware of human tradition and the basic principles of this world. And last week we talked about how Paul uses that verse twice in this passage, basic principles of this world, to highlight a couple of things. But one of them is the instinct that we have in our heart of wanting to achieve our standing before God. And we see that in the the error of the Judaizers who were coming into the church and saying, Christ is a savior, but there's something else that you need. You need to resubmit yourselves to parts of the Jewish ceremonial law. You need to observe the Jewish calendar. And then what we'll focus in on tonight, this this theological error of, of you need to worship or revere, or give your allegiance to these other intercessors, these other mediators who are going to get you to where you need to go. They'll get you to Jesus, but you need to go through all of these steps in order to to get there. So as I said, Paul addresses a, a theological error and a practical error in this chapter. The theological error is that Christ is somehow insufficient as our mediator. He's somehow insufficient. It's incomplete. Right? And this is based off of what you might call a, a, a hierarchical spirituality. And what I mean by that, it's like a, a staircase. You need to, to gradually go up step by step. And this is also based off of a view of the world that matter is evil. This was the Colossian heresy, is that the, the material stuff of this world was inherently evil. And the spiritual things were good. And so you need to ascend up what they would call the the great chain of being by going through all of these lower mediators, these lower intercessors to get to Christ. The practical error works itself out in, in a couple of different ways. If Jesus is somehow insufficient, if he somehow is not complete in his work, then a couple of things you need to do. Submit to the Jewish ceremonial law. And submit to this system of mediators and intercessors other than Jesus. 
And so as Paul addresses these, the call that he puts upon the Colossians is that their faith in the gospel must grow ever stronger. Never leave the core doctrines of the gospel. Continue to walk in them. Your Christian life needs to be shaped around an understanding of the grace of God, an understanding of how Christ has reconciled you to God, and living in light of all of that. The problem is not inherent in physical matter. It's not inherent in uh, the stuff of this world. The problem is in us. The problem is with our sin. We are sinners and we need to be saved from sin. Uh, the, The gap between God and the matter of the universe is not one that is solved in stages, not through a series of intermediators or intercessors, but rather through the one perfect mediator. And knowing that, knowing that background helps to us to understand why in Colossians chapter 1, Paul it takes a long time to show the supremacy of Christ. And one of the most glorious passages in the New Testament begins in verse 15. And he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right? By, the, by the way, that word firstborn doesn't mean the, the one who was created first. It means the heir, right? the firstborn, uh, the firstborn of all creation. Um, I would be considered the firstborn even though I was the secondborn because I was the firstborn son. So I was the heir to the throne of the Svensson Viking castle. But then, of course, because I became reformed, that has now shifted to my lower, my younger brother. He is the heir to the throne. Now, Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Not that he is created, but that he is the heir of all things. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He, Paul wants them to be gripped by this reality of the supremacy of Christ. You, you cannot overestimate this, the supremacy of Christ. And what he's doing in Colossians is he's affirming the supremacy, but then he's challenging the ways that this, this heretical false teaching has seeped into their minds. So who is Christ? Who is Christ? We look at verses 9 and 10. It says, all the fullness of the deity. All the fullness of the deity. In other words, Paul says, all of what it means to be God can be found in Jesus. That doesn't mean that Jesus exhausts what we know about God. Because God is one in essence and three in person. But as it relates to the essence of God, the attributes, who he is... All that is can be found in God. This is a clear proclamation of the deity of Christ, the historic doctrine that Christ is fully and truly God. The Colossian false teachers were appealing to this idea of fullness. This would have been in their vocabulary. This idea of the fullness would have been part of that hierarchical, that staircase view of spirituality, making your way step by step up to Jesus through all of these uh, lower parts of the process. Uh, the, The less something was material, the closer it was to the fullness. They would have this idea of sort of the the oneness of deity. And they would use this word, fullness, to uh, teach what they mean. And so Jesus, or Paul, is, is saying this about Christ, that the fullness of what it means to be God 
can be found in him. He is truly God. And so he's starting to borrow from the same categories. He's the absolute Lord of all. Nothing is lacking in Christ. He is supreme. But then he, he takes dead aim at this false teaching. And he says that the supreme Lord, the one in whom the fullness of the deity dwells, he lives in what? The end of verse 9. Bodily form. He lives in bodily form. So this is an affirmation of Christ's humanity. He's affirmed his deity. He is God. He is fully God and true God. He is also man. This is a direct assault on the Colossian heresy. That someone in whom the fullness of the deity dwells could also exist in bodily form. In other words, that which they would see at the end of the staircase is fully present in the bodily and human existence of Jesus. The idea of perfect, complete deity taking on material substance would have been uh, probably unthinkable to most of these Colossian false teachers. So we conclude that he is God and he is man. He is the supreme one. But who is Christ for you, for me, for the believers in Colossae? That's what verse 10 talks about. He is the one who gives us completed and finished work. Those who are found in Christ are complete in regards to salvation. Paul says, you have been given fullness in Christ. What is shocking there is that Paul uses that same word again, fullness. Again, taking dead aim at the false teaching. He's saying, look, the fullness of what it means to be God is in Christ. Christ dwells not only as true God, but in bodily form. And fullness, completeness, in other words, perfect salvation. Paul isn't saying that the fullness of godness or deity is given to us in Christ. Rather, he's saying the fullness of what it means to be constituted righteous before God, the fullness of salvation is given to you by faith in Christ. He does this to show that the, the assumption of these false teachers about material reality, that the material stuff of this world, that which you can touch and see, that it's inherently sinful, that was wrong. That was wrong. The problem is not with matter. The problem is with sin. And so Jesus is the one who gives us completed and finished work. Whatever Paul is saying is that what you find in Christ, it, it's not insufficient in any way. And that, of course, is the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God, that you are completely established by faith in Christ. And Paul goes on to say that this is the power and the authority that we need. You have been given fullness in Christ, who is the, the head over every power and authority. That word head most normally means a functional, a functional authority. The one who exercises authority over powers below it. Jesus is the power and authority that we need. I was uh, visiting Reverend Blau this week at, uh, at Hartsfield and, you know, he's talking about, uh, we had to apologize to Joyce because after about an hour, Reverend Blau and I were just chatting about pastor things and we realized that it, the conversation had kind of gone on and on and on. We were talking about uh, some of his frustrations about trying to get people to, 
to, you know, if he had a complaint, to whom did he bring the complaint? And he said, you know, if you want something done here, what I just don't know is where does the buck stop? I need to know who is the one calling the shots here. We've all had experiences like that. I've been having a frustration over here at the Parsonage with uh, ComEd. One of the power line poles is leaning over. Some may say slightly, some may say severely. I don't know if I would say slightly or severely or what ComEd would say. I've called them many, many times about this power line pole. And I saw AT&T out here this week and I said, can I ask you something? How badly is that power line pole uh, leaning over? I don't want it to fall into the house. I keep calling them. And the guy said, look, man, you've got to find the president you got to get it to the desk of the president. I said, I know, I'm trying. We all have those kinds of experiences. Who is the one who has the authority to make the call on this? I want to get him or her on the phone right now. I need to get this to his or her desk. Paul is saying that in Christ, the power and the authority that you would need for all the blessings of salvation is found in Christ. But how? How? Does Christ do all of that for us? How is he all of that, the perfect Savior for us? Very simply, through the blood of his cross. And this is the way that Paul uh, addresses and subverts the false teaching in Colossians, is that he's taking the transcendence of God, the glory and the majesty of the fullness, and he mingles it with the story of the gospel, Christ, who dies and sheds his blood on the cross. Colossians chapter 1 that starts in verse 15 with this glorious, majestic description of Christ. It goes on to say in verse 21, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, it would be offensive to them, body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice how Paul uh, calls the Colossian Christians to continue in the faith. We're good Calvinists here. We know that all things have been decreed from eternity past, that the number of the elect has been set. It cannot change. It cannot be altered. We need to hear... These kinds of warnings from Paul. As probably all of us know those who would have called themselves Christians who have made shipwreck of their faith. God is working out his perfect election in history and in time as he calls us to remain faithful to the gospel. need to hear those warnings from Paul. Continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast. But he continues to intermingle the glory of God and the earthiness of our salvation. Right, Colossians 2, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The flesh of the God-man is what reconciles us uh, to God. Christianity is filled with blood. And that's offensive to many people. That's gross. But it's on every page of Scripture. More than anything else, the blood of Christ is the ground or is spoken of as accomplishing for us the grand benefits that belong to salvation. We have been purchased by his blood, Acts 20. We have been propitiated 
by his blood, Romans 3. We have been justified by his blood, Romans 5. We have redemption through his blood, Ephesians 1. We read that this morning in our affirmation of faith. We who are far off have been brought near by his blood, Ephesians 2.13. We have peace through his blood, Colossians 1.20. Our consciences are purified by his blood, Hebrews 9. We are sanctified through his blood, Hebrews 13. We are ransomed by his blood, 1 Peter 1. We have been set free from sin. By his blood, Romans, or Revelation chapter 1. This would have been something hated by the Colossians because of their aversion to matter and their aversion to uh, material things. This is how God accomplished, accomplished our salvation, through the blood of Christ. In today's world, we don't have a Colossian heresy. We're, uh, we don't have a bunch of uh, you know, secret Gnostics going around this world. That's kind of a, something that's gone out of vogue, right? Gnosticism isn't something that you see too much. We don't have a Colossian heresy. We've got a, a moralistic, therapeutic deism heresy, right? The, the, the offensiveness of the Christian gospel today is that uh, there is in the world a sense that you can't have a proclamation that is exclusive, that says Christ is the only way, and we need to be reconciled because in our natural state we are hostile to God. Grace offends people in that way because it says there's nothing righteous or good in you. You need to be reconciled to the grace of God. Moralistic therapeutic deism reigning paradigm in our world says this. It says a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. That's good enough as it goes, but it goes on to say, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly, particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem, keeping him at arm's length. And finally, good people go to heaven when they die or turn into angels as the case may be. In this kind of a message, if you can call it that, there's no sin, there's no cross, there's no redemption, there's no blood of Christ. And so you see oftentimes that some kind of disaster will happen and there will be a a big get-together to raise money for people, which is a wonderful thing. But oftentimes you'll see, you turn this on TV after tragedies, someone will come in and sing John Lennon, right? Imagine there's no heaven, uh, imagine there's no hell, or imagine one world altogether. As you sing John Lennon, you read from the uh, Hindu sacred writings, you sing Amazing Grace all in the matter of about ten minutes. You see, uh, these kinds of things stand opposed to the Christian gospel, which is an exclusive message. The world is not fine with this bloody religion, too primitive, too gross, too offensive, too centered upon sin. But the Supreme One is the one Savior. That is what Paul is saying. Secondly, the intercessor is always interceding. The intercessor is always interceding, verses 18 and 19. False teaching will disqualify you if you follow it. Look at verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. The Christian life is like a contest. Christ is the umpire and the judge and the dispenser of rewards. Eternal life is the prize. Faith in Christ is the winning game plan. As Paul says, 
continue, stable and steadfast in the, the, the faith. Paul says, do not let these false teachers disqualify you. Right? They are not the umpires. They are not the dispensers of benefits. What they are is they are like those in the stands who are trying to, you know, at a basketball game, they wave the signs or wave the balloons to try and distract the person who's shooting the free throw. They would be like somebody who comes up on the sideline of a football or a soccer game and sticks out their foot trying to trip up the ones who are competing. This false teaching, if you follow it, will disqualify you, Paul said. The false teaching defined. It is a self-conscious humility. These are people who delight in false humility. In today's parlance, this would be the humble brag. The humble brag, sort of slyly calling, a, calling attention to something that you have done in a way that makes it seem like you're not bragging. I saw on, online the other day, someone said, I'm publishing three different books this year. Does anyone have any advice on how I'm going to deal with all the attention? Right? That's the, the quintessential humble brag. You're trying to tell people about something wonderful that you are doing. And this would have been the false humility of those who were following the Colossian false teachers or the false teachers themselves. They would have gone on and on and on about their vast complex of these lower intercessors, these angels that they were worshiping, that were getting them up the staircase of the great chain of being to finally get towards the end. They would delight in the false humility because they would explain, this is how I'm getting to Jesus. This is how I'm climbing up that staircase. This is how I'm going to finally arrive. Humble brag. Elaborate descriptions for their religious rites and their devotion to angels. This word for worship that Paul uses for worship of angels, it has a bad connotation. It can usually mean idolatry and false worship. That's what it means every time in the Greek Old Testament. usually has a, a bad connotation when this word is used. It was a cloak for their pride. It was a way for them to brag about what they were doing. And so the result in verse 19, as Paul said, the one who goes on about this, the one who is delighting in this false humility, the one who is trusting in these other mediators, who has, who has left Christ as the one and perfect Savior, they have been cut off from the only one who can actually grant you the blessings of salvation. As Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. The natural conclusion that we get from Paul, from this chapter, is why would you cut yourself off from the only one who can grant you salvation? Why would you cut yourself off from the only one who is qualified to intercede for you, who never grows tired, who never grows weary, who never needs someone to step in for him, who loves us more than anyone else, as the confession says, Jesus Christ loves you perfectly. He died for you while you were yet a sinner. You have automatic and unhindered access to the throne of grace. You have wonderful blessings that flow through you, uh, to you in Christ. But they only come in Christ. It's the only place where you can find them. The intercessor is always interceding. We can go all the way to the throne of grace in Christ. We don't need any help to get there. So finally, the substitute needs no substitute. The intercessor is always interceding. He ever lives to make intercession for us. Finally, the substitute needs no 
substitute. The wisdom of this passage is seen in clinging to Christ in faith, to understanding the gospel. He's a perfect intercessor. As 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The book of Hebrews says, therefore let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. It doesn't mean that we are not sinners like those who run in fear from God. Of course we are sinners. But why does he appear before the throne? He appears for sin, to be our sin substitute. So we cling to Christ in faith. We, wonder, we rest in the simple truth of the gospel. We reject hierarchical spiritualities. Matter is not sinful. The stuff of this earth is not sinful. Sin is sinful. Romans 8 says that creation itself is awaiting redemption. It is groaning, awaiting its new birth, if you will, that will happen at the return of Jesus Christ, where it will be purified, and it will come forth a a new heavens and a new earth, just like we will be given new bodies fit for eternity. The return of Christ will be like the rebirth of this world into a new heavens and a new earth. Matter is not sinful. Sin is sinful. There's all kinds of evidence from Scripture to say that whatever we experience in the new creation will have matter involved. Finally, we don't need other intercessors. We don't need a saint. You don't need a patron saint of real estate transactions that you bury in your front yard when you want to sell your house. You don't need a patron saint of the fear of mice or spiders, as intriguing as that may sound to you ladies up out there. You don't need a patron saint of your various fears. Um, my daughter was taught in preschool, second month of preschool, the memory verse, when I am afraid, I will trust in God, that he is the one who uh, can comfort us in the midst of our fears. Um, approaching Spirituality that way is superstition, right? Saying, well, if you, if you go through this intermediate intercessor, if you bury a statue of this patron saint of your, in your front yard, you can sort of conjure up God's favor. Right? That's superstition. That's feeling like you can change the balance of God's plan in your favor. It's a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. You don't want to go too far the other way. Abraham Lincoln was sort of a deist, and uh, he was famous for saying, what is to be is what will be. Our prayers won't alter God's decree. We need to have a proper and a healthy approach to all these things to say that God has ordained that he would answer his prayers in the fullness of time. From eternity past, he has ordained that we would come to him in prayer before things happen, that we would bring it to the throne of grace, that we would bring it passionately, asking him to intercede on our behalf so that when he does answer prayers, we might give him all of the glory. Of course, it's all held by his decree. It doesn't mean we need to be dismissive with all of these things. We accept all things from his hand. We don't try to conjure up good fortune. We ask for the strength to endure when God asks us to go through hard times. We rest in his decree. We rest in what he gives. And we learn through faith, through the endurance of faith, through the stable and steadfast faith in Christ, we learn in all things to be content and to rest in the God who loves us in the Christ who gave himself for us, who loves us uh, more than any saint in the history of the church could. 
There are many saints that we should honor, many heroes of Christian faith who have gone before us. And each and every one of them who had a true faith in Jesus Christ would stand up here tonight if they could. And they would tell you, trust in Christ, the one and only mediator between God and man. The only one in whom you can approach the throne of grace. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise and adoration for the glorious gospel that you have revealed in the fullness of time in Christ, the one and only mediator and intercessor between God and man is the man, Jesus Christ, the one who even now intercedes for us before your throne. And so we give all of these things to you in his name. Amen.